Today, we are talking about longing for relationship. And this sermon series during this Advent season, and today is week three. That's why we lit the pink candle, because pink is a combination of purple and white. And during this time of Advent, it's a time of repentance. It's a time of preparation to celebrate Christmas and to remember that Jesus came, but also to remember that he promised that he will come again. The title of this sermon series is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Two weeks ago, we looked at longing for meaning. Last week, we looked at longing for control. And today, we're going to look at longing for relationship. We are called human beings. What does that mean? Think about it. Human beings. Now, in our culture, it's almost like human doings because we love to put badges on ourselves, how busy we are and how much we accomplish and how much we do. But in reality, we're human beings created in God's image and his likeness. And God, who is three persons in one, is the perfect example of what it means to be created for a relationship. For all eternity, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit have been in a perfect relationship with one another. And they created us not because they were lonely. God didn't create us because he was lonely. He created us to glorify his name and to share his glory with his people. And when you read scripture, starting in the, New, in the Old Testament all the way through, God has longed to dwell with his people. 20 years ago, Christy and I were in Mexico. As you guys know our story, we lived in Mexico for almost 20 years. And when I went down in 1995, there were very few coffee shops in the United States. Starbucks was just getting started. Now, it started in 1971, but it didn't take off until the 90s. And I remember coming back from a tiny little hick town in central Mexico where there weren't coffee shops. There wasn't tons of places to go hang out. I remember coming back here as a single and then after getting married and just watching this phenomenon of coffee shops why? What was it about coffee shops that drew people to it? Was it the good coffee? Maybe. And are humans that foolish to spend four bucks on a small cup of coffee? Yes, we are. But what was it about coffee shops? It offered a place for community. Go into any coffee shop today, and yes, unfortunately, you'll see people all on their computers or on their phones. But before there was Wi-Fi, before there was all these smartphones, you'd go into a coffee shop and you'd see five, six, ten people seated seated around a table or sitting in the soft seats, fellowshipping and talking. They tapped into something about human nature, a longing for relationship. In 2004, Facebook was started, and this is... Facebook's mission is to give people the power to build community and to bring the world together. This is not a Facebook commercial, but that is their mission statement. A longing to give people the power to build community and to bring the world closer together. And we could debate if they're fulfilling it or not. Our mission statement as a church, it's a tiny little blue sign right out here. You'll see it. Most of us probably don't see it anymore because it's there every Sunday. But our mission statement statement is to engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime, 
with anybody. Engage the whole person. We were created for relationship. We weren't created to do it alone, but to do it together through Jesus and power of Holy Spirit. Right here in Genesis 45, if you've closed your Bibles, please open it back up. Genesis 45. And before we dive into chapter 45, I got a confession to make. I'm going to try to preach through 13 passages, chapters today in Genesis. Genesis 37 to 50 is what I'm going to try to do today. I guess it's 14 chapters. But we're not going to read every single verse, only 90% of them, okay? So get ready. No, I'm just teasing. Let me explain to you the context of Genesis 45. Genesis 45 talks about when Joseph, who is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, when he finally reveals himself to his 11 brothers. Now, if you know the story of Joseph, you you might know it really well. But if you're new to the scripture, you might be, Joseph, is that Mary's husband? No, it is not Mary's husband. This Joseph lived hundreds of years before Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived. This is the Joseph of the Old Testament and his life story. I'm surprised Hollywood has not done an epic movie on the life of Joseph. It has everything that Hollywood would want in it. Intrigue, a protagonist, antagonist, violence, separation, almost war, immorality, and reconciliation. It is the perfect movie script They won't have to change a thing, and it would still be probably PG-13 or R-rated. Here's the story of Joseph. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. And Joseph, oh, I got to remember the camera. Guys online, sorry. I'm going to wander all over this place. Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson, and he was born as the 11th son of Jacob. He was born into one of the most extreme dysfunctional families that I have ever heard of or know of. Because see, Jacob had four wives. They were sisters. Two of them were sisters. The other two were the slaves of the two sisters. Jacob himself was born into a very dysfunctional family. And Jacob was full of deceit and lies. He even had to flee from his brother who, who he had stolen his birthright. And so Joseph, Joseph is born into this family. And the reality with this family, with a husband with four wives and two of them being servants of the other two wives, there is unbelievable amounts of rivalry, hate, bitterness, favoritism between the four women along with Jacob and then the, four, and then the, the, the sons of those four women. Here comes Joseph, number 11. Now, Joseph is born as a foreigner. He's born as a foreigner, as an immigrant. And at the age of 11 or 12, his father decides that it's time because God had told him to move back to the promised land. So here Joseph is, the youngest of the brothers. He's got 10 brothers and a sister. So most of his brothers are five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years older than he is. And his brothers are violent. They're immoral. They're treacherous. His father is very passive. His father was not a good father, nor was he a good leader. Joseph is born. His mother was his father's favorite wife. The one as a young man who he longed to marry. So who is Jacob going to show favorites to of his 11 sons? Joseph. At that point in time, the baby brother. At age 12, they move back to Canaan. His mom, Joseph's mother, is pregnant with her second child. 
And on the way home, back, she gives birth to Benjamin. And in the childbirth, Rachel dies. So at age 12, Joseph has a new baby brother named Benjamin, and his mother is dead. And he is the favorite son. They get back to Canaan, which is a foreign land for him, but it's his father's homeland. He's got 10 older brothers who despise him, who loathe him, and his 10 older brothers are extremely violent. One of them slept with one of the four wives. One of them slept with a prostitute. Several of them slaughtered an entire tribe of men for having raped their sister, Joseph's half-sister. His brothers are not good men. They're impulsive and violent. And yet Jacob, the father, pours all of his love upon Joseph, who for 12 years was the baby and was the favorite son. Now, Joseph wasn't perfect. He was self-righteous. He was arrogant. And he knew that he was the favorite. If you have siblings, you might know what I'm talking about. Joseph also got dreams, and he was able to interpret the dreams. And one of those dreams was that he dreamed that the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowed down to him. And he knew what that meant, that his father and his mother, though passed away, and all of his brothers would one day bow down to him. So here Joseph is as a 15, 16-year-old telling his father, telling his brothers, his older brothers, one day you're going to bow down to me. His father trusted Joseph. And when his older brothers were out with the sheep out in the fields, his father would send Joseph out to spy on his brothers, to snitch on his brothers. And do you guys know the phrase, snitches get stitches? If you were one of the older brothers, how would you treat your little brother? That little twit, here he comes again. That little pompous, arrogant little brother of ours, here he comes. And you know he's going to tattletale. And Joseph would. I want to paint the picture because Joseph was not perfect. But his brothers were vile and violent. And his father was passive. And he did not discipline, lead, or disciple any of those sons. And his father knew it. So here we have Joseph at age 17. He was sent out by his father to the field. And this is homework for you guys. Read Genesis. Read Genesis chapter 37 through 50. It's the whole story of Joseph. If you want to back it up to chapter 30, you can. Read it slowly. Dive into it. But Joseph at age 17, he's been sent out to the field trying to find his brothers. And as he's approaching Oh, by the way, Joseph was given this amazing coat from his father as the favored son. So here he comes, and his brothers are already out. They've been out in the field for weeks, for days, for months with the sheep. And as Joseph approached, they begin to concoct a plan to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. He's gonna, you know what he's going to do. He's going to watch us. He's going to tattletale on us. He's going to tell our father this and that about what we're not doing right. And then they concoct this plan. Let's kill him. And so they take Joseph. They rip off his coat that his father gave him. They throw him in this pit. And they plan to kill him. They threaten him. 
And as he's in this pit and he's pleading and begging for his life, all of his brothers, they sit down and they eat lunch. And they're talking about how they're going to kill them. Can you imagine what it's like for Joseph as a 17-year-old and all your older brothers who are in their 20s and probably 30s, bigger than you, stronger than you, and they hate you? Talking about how they're going to kill you. One of the older brothers had left because he had secretly convinced them, no, no, let's not kill him, but let's, let's do something else. And he leaves. And while the oldest brother is gone, some Ishmaelites, who actually were distant cousins of the Israelites, come passing by. And the brothers pull Joseph out and they sell him. They sell their own flesh and blood. Think about this. They sell their baby brother, well, the second youngest, to these travelers as a slave. And off he goes. And they concocted a plan. And then the oldest brother who had convinced them, no, no, let's not kill our brother. Let's do something else. Realizes that they had sold their brother and he's gone. So they tear up his coat. They kill a goat. They put blood all on it. And they take it back to their father, telling him that this is what we found convincing their father that Joseph had been killed by some wild animal. If you were Joseph, how would you feel about your brothers? What would be stirring in your heart, having been beaten, thrown into a pit, threatened to be killed? Oh, they have mercy on you and they sell you as a slave. Think about it. And then Joseph is taken down to Egypt. And most of us know this story, but I want to set this story up because we're talking about relationship. We're going to be talking a lot about forgiveness and asking for forgiveness and and reconciliation and restoration. So here we have this 17-year-old boy. Think about if you're not 17, maybe you're 15, 12, 10, or think about what you were like when you were 17. Yes, Joseph was a snitch and he was arrogant. He was not perfect. But did he deserve to be sold as a slave? taken down to Egypt, to another culture, to another language, to another people group, but not as a free person. He didn't go on his own. He went as a slave. And there in Egypt, he's bought by a man named Potiphar, who is the captain of the Egyptian guard. He is one of the high officials in all of Egypt. And he buys Joseph as a slave. So here he is. And if you've lived in another culture, another country with another language, some of you are from another country and you might not speak English that well. So what's it like to try to learn another language? Meg and I were talking about this this morning, her in China five, six years ago, trying to learn Chinese. I remember the first six months in Mexico, I could say hola, and that was about it, feeling so like a duck, like a fish out of the water, feeling so out of control because I didn't understand the language. I didn't understand the culture. And Mexico is right next door. Going down to Egypt as a slave, think about it. Joseph doesn't know the language. He doesn't know the culture. And he's now a slave of a high official. But as you read Genesis 37 to 50, you will see a common phrase about Joseph. And it says this, and the Lord was with them. And the Lord was with them. What does that mean? Well, first, it means that God is faithful and God was with Joseph. He always was with Joseph. But I also think it reflects and it, it describes a little about the relationship that Joseph had with the Lord. Even though he was immature, very immature when he explained the dreams he was having to his father and brothers, he had a relationship with the Lord. He trusted the Lord. 
And Potiphar, his owner, his master, saw that the Lord's hand was upon Joseph. And he put him in charge of his entire household. He put Joseph in charge of all the slaves and everything going on in the household. And it says in Genesis that Potiphar's house was blessed because of Joseph. The Lord blessed and it prospered because of Joseph. But the scriptures also say this. Potiphar's wife recognized Joseph because it says that Joseph was handsome and well-built. And she began to tempt Joseph saying, hey, sleep with me. My husband's not here. Let's go to bed together. But it says that Joseph resisted her. And it says daily she tempted him. Daily. And he says, no, he says, no, he says, no. Even in one of the descriptions, he tells her, how could I do such a horrible thing against heaven? How could I sin against God? How could I do this to my master? And Joseph even tells her, your husband, my master, has given me control over everything in the household except you. How could I dare sin against God and against him? Never. And if you don't know the story, she grabbed his cloak and pleaded that he sleep with her. And he said no, and he fled. And when she realized what she had done, that she was going to get in trouble, she then guarded his cloak and waited till her husband returned. And then she went to her husband and said, this Hebrew slave who you bought has tried to take advantage of me. So here Joseph, walking in godliness, holiness, resisting temptation. He is now falsely accused, not only of sexual harassment, but attempted rape. What does Potiphar do? Throws him, Joseph, in prison. So here we have a young boy, the favored son, sold into slavery. He's not perfect, but he's following the Lord. He's walking in obedience. He's resisting temptation. He does everything, I won't say everything, as he is broken. But he obeys the Lord, and yet he is falsely accused. And he's now thrown in prison. And he didn't do anything wrong. Have you, have you ever been punished, and yet you're innocent? And yet it says, while in prison, it says, but the Lord was with him. And while in prison, the captain of the prison guard, the jailer recognizes, ooh, the Lord is with this young man. And the head of the prison put Joseph in charge of everything there in the prison. Can you imagine being in prison? And the guards and the warden of the prison see God's hand upon you and says, hey, I know you're a prisoner, but can you be in charge of this place? He's not only been sold a slave, he's now a prisoner. Most theologians believe that Joseph was in prison for at least 10 years. So here we have this young man at age 17, sold into slavery. A slave for two, three years, walking in obedience, resisting temptation, being faithful, trusting the Lord and yet now thrown in prison. Think about it. 
what would you be doing? Where would your emotional state be? Would you be trusting the Lord all as well? Or would you be walking in self-pity? Blaming others, blaming God, blaming Potiphar, blaming Potiphar's wife, blaming your brothers, blaming your father. And there he is in prison. Years later, still in prison, two high officials of Pharaoh, the cupbearer and the baker, are thrown in prison because of supposedly an attempted coup or insurrection. And while they're in prison, they both have dreams. And one morning, Joseph recognizes and sees that their faces are downcast. So he asks, what's going on? And they tell him their dreams, and he interprets the dreams, and it comes true. One is executed, and the other is restored to his place. And he tells the cupbearer, when you get back, when you're restored, please tell Pharaoh what has happened to me. Forgotten. Two years pass by, and Pharaoh has a dream about seven cows that are strong and fit, and then seven very lean cows that come up and eat the seven strong, healthy cows. And Pharaoh wakes up, and he has no idea what's going on, but he knows something horrible is going to happen to his country. And then the cupbearer remembers, oh, yeah, there was this Hebrew young man that was in the prison, and he interpreted my dream and the dream of the baker, and it came true. You need to go to him. He will interpret your dream. But before we do that, I have a question for you. Are you a victim? Am I a victim? How often do we see in the news and interviews, on TV, social media, even friends, family, maybe ourselves, where we're victims of other people's sinful decisions all the time. The truth is all of us are victims. We are victims of other people's poor and sinful choices. And because we suffer the consequences of other people's poor, sinful decisions, we have a choice to make. We can languish in what I would call the victim mentality and blame those people who are responsible for our life circumstances and languish in it and never grow out of it and never allow Holy Spirit to touch us and mold us and transform us and come out of the ashes of that sin. That's one of our choices. Or the other choice, and it's to do what Joseph is doing and what we will see, is to trust the Lord and cling to the Lord. And even though we're hard-pressed and pressed in every way, allow him to work in our lives, to be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus. I know I'm explaining a lot, but quick review about the life of Joseph, because if there is anyone, anyone, that could stand up and say, I'm a victim of life circumstances, it would be Joseph. Look at this. He was born an immigrant. He was born into an extremely dysfunctional family. 
His brothers were violent, cruel, and immoral men. And for 12 years, he's the youngest. He's the baby. How much trauma do you think he suffered by watching his older brothers and how they lived? Watching the dysfunction and the rivalries going on between the four wives of his father. His mother died when he was 12 years old. So there he is left motherless. What else? He become, he's sold into, well, ooh, I've skipped one. I can hardly see that. His father was passive and a poor leader as a father in the family. His father showed Joseph favoritism, which for some of us, we might think, cool, at least he's the favored son. But then now he is isolated and targeted by the other 10 older brothers. How do you think they treat him when their father's not looking? He's then sold as a slave. And he then becomes a foreigner taken to another country. And as a slave there in his master's house, he is tempted every day by his master's wife. And yet he resisted. And for doing the right godly thing, he's falsely accused of sexual harassment and attempted rape. And so he's thrown into prison where he languishes. And he's forgotten for over 10 years. If I was Joseph, I'd be clenching my fist to God, saying, this is not fair. This is not fair. How could you do this to me? That's where I would be. And yet after Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, in one day, he goes from being a prisoner to prime minister. Because he tells Pharaoh that there'll be seven years of incredible harvest but then there'll be seven years of such a horrific drought that it will consume those seven good years. So he tells Pharaoh, you need to find someone in this kingdom to organize your entire kingdom to have enough food for those seven years of drought. And Pharaoh says, who is there but you? So he makes him prime minister. And Joseph marries one of the high priest's daughters, and they have two sons. And so for seven years, Joseph is prime minister of Egypt. And then the two years of drought. And the drought got so bad that it spread up into Canaan where Jacob is and Joseph's brothers are, that Joseph's brothers come down. And you can read it. And there's not a whole lot of commentary in Genesis 40 to 44, but it's the interaction between Joseph and his brothers. Because 22 years have passed since his brothers have seen Joseph. And when they come down to Egypt and they buy grain, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Why? Well, because he's speaking Egyptian. He shaved his head. He's wearing the makeup. He looks Egyptian now. He's no longer 17, but he's 40. And he sees his brothers and he recognizes them. And you can read it there in Genesis 40, 41, 42, 43. But there's this crazy interaction where Joseph interrogates his brothers and he doesn't reveal who he is. And he speaks harshly to him, but at the same time, he's asking questions. Is your father still alive? Do you have any more siblings? And he finds out his father still is alive. His baby brother is alive now, but his baby brother is now in his 20s. Joseph still doesn't reveal who he is. Why? Joseph is testing his brothers to see where they are emotionally, spiritually, what's going on. His brothers leave, but he commands them and tells them, you cannot come back unless you bring your baby brother with you. Jacob refuses to release Benjamin to go back down to Egypt, but they run out of food. 
And Jacob finally relents and says, yes, you may go. But it took the vow of the fourth oldest son, Judah. Judah promised and vowed to his father, my life be cursed. And I take responsibility if the baby does not come back. Now, Benjamin is 20-something years old. So they get down. And they come back to Egypt, and Joseph takes them to his house. And he sets up this huge banquet, this huge feast. And he puts them in order from oldest to youngest. And it says that the brothers marvel. And he gives Benjamin like twice the amount of food. And they marvel at what's going on. And then he says, go get your father, but Benjamin needs to stay here. And the brothers plead with, with, with Joseph, please don't, because if the youngest does not go back to the father, the father will die. And there's a passage here, and I want everybody to stand up here in Genesis 44. In Genesis 44, and this is after all the interaction between Joseph and his brothers, it is extremely tense. And the brothers don't know what to do because Joseph wants to keep Benjamin with him, but they know if Benjamin does not go back, Their father will die. And look at this. Judah comes forward in verse 32. This is what Judah says. He says, your servant became accountable to my father for the boy saying, if I do not return to him to return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Think of the grief that Judah has felt for 20 plus years, knowing what he's done to Joseph, because they still don't know this is Joseph with who they're talking to. Y'all may be seated. But but Judah finally becomes honest with Joseph and basically spills the beans, pleading to Joseph, please let me stay with you. I will take Benjamin's place. But if you do not let Benjamin go back, our father will die because his soul is knit to the youngest. And then right here in in chapter 45, and that's what we read earlier, It says that Joseph could no longer keep his composure. This is chapter 45, verse 1. He could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Could you imagine being one of Joseph's brothers? For these, what, six months, two years that have gone on, they've been interacting with this Egyptian, the prime minister of Egypt, and they're scared to death of him. And here they are, they're in his house. And he commands all the servants to leave, and he's speaking in Egyptian. They don't know what's going on. And so it's just the 11 brothers and Joseph. And it says that he began to weep so loudly that even Pharaoh's household heard it. His servants outside that room, they could hear Joseph weeping. Why? Because Joseph was longing for reconciliation with his brothers and he'd longed to be in relationship with his father. For 20 plus years, he'd been ostracized, sent down to Egypt, a completely new life. And here he is weeping and weeping. Could you imagine the verse? Oh my gosh. 
Is he going to order soldiers in here to kill us? Oh my gosh, what's going on? And then he says, I'm Joseph. And they don't believe him. They're so terrified. But look at what happens. Look at here in verse four. It says, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. Please come near to me. Emmanuel, God with us. God came near through Jesus. Joseph says, please come near me. And they came near him and he says, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. And I think right there, they got it. Because how would this prime minister know that these 10 men sold their baby brother at the time, well, the second youngest brother into slavery? And then look at what Joseph says here. You see, Joseph, he had every right to actually execute his brothers for the sins they had committed against him. He had every right to reject them and not give them anything. He had every right to do that. But because of the Lord working in Joseph's heart, Joseph had the power through God himself to not only forgive his brothers, but to reconcile with his brothers. And look at what Joseph says here in verse 5. He says this. He says, and now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. I'm going to read it again. And don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you. He says it a second time and he's going to say it a third time. Think of that perspective. How could Joseph be able to look back at his life and for those horrible, wretched things that happened to him and he can stand up and tell his brothers, God did it. God did it. God allowed you to sell me into slavery. God allowed Potiphar to put me in charge. God allowed me to be tempted in every way. And by his power, I resisted. And yet God allowed me to be falsely accused of sexual harassment and rape. And God allowed me to be thrown in prison. And for almost 13 years, I languished in prison. God allowed that to happen. What do you think was happening? While Joseph was there working as a slave, what do you think was happening while he was languishing in prison? I'm sure his mind and his heart was, man, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. One day, if I can, my brothers, I'm going to get my brother. I can imagine him going over and mulling over anger and bitterness and resentment and hate and desires for revenge. And yet Holy Spirit continues to press down upon Joseph. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. There's a better way. There's a greater way. There's a better way. And that way is forgiveness, and that way is reconciliation, and that way is releasing, it's giving mercy. And it took almost 20 years as God worked in the heart of Joseph for Joseph to finally stand up and have God's perspective. You see, Hebrews chapter 12, there's two verses in there, and I do not like this verse. And Caleb, go ahead and put it on out. Hebrews 12. It says this, the writer Hebrews says, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he punishes every son or daughter he receives. So in God's great sovereignty and God's great goodness, 
He allowed and He actually orchestrated even through sinful events. Now, God does not tempt us to sin, nor does God sin. But God is so good and so sovereign and so amazing. He can allow horrible and wretched things to happen to us. And he uses it as discipline and he uses it to mold and transform us and touch us and actually lift us up. And as he worked in the life of Joseph while he languished as a slave and as a prisoner, Joseph was was able to begin to see, whoa, this is the Lord's doing. This is the Lord's work because see in Romans chapter 8, 32, and it's a verse that gets thrown around way too much. It says that God works the good of what? Of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8. Is it on there, Caleb? Nope. Mm -mm. My fault. Sorry, that's my bad. God works out all things. How many things? All things. For the good. Of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And so Joseph was able to have this perspective, this godly, eternal perspective of his own life and the horrible things that happened to him. And he was able to say, no, God sent me ahead of you. And I know this is long, but then Joseph begins to say, he says, God sent me ahead of you, and I've now become the Lord of all of Pharaoh's household. And then in verse 9, he says, return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made him Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay, and you can settle in Goshen. And then here we see then Joseph at the very end, he tells his brothers, go back to my father quickly and tell him to come down with me. You see, because Joseph longed for a relationship with his father and with his brothers. And through the power of Holy Spirit, he was able to forgive his brothers, bless his brothers, and work and fight for reconciliation, fight for relationship. And I love these last two verses here in verse 14 and verse 15. After Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and he talks to them, it says in verse 14, then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Then it says that Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. There's so much in this passage that we could look at, but there's four key truths to this passage The first one is this, God has created us for relationship. We're human beings, not human doings. He's created us for relationship. The second thing is God is sovereign over all. God is not evil. God does not tempt us. God does not sin. And one of the deepest questions that we ask is, if God is all-powerful and good and loving, why does he allow evil to happen to us? And I'll be honest with you, we will never get a perfectly good answer to that question until we get to heaven. But all scriptures God breathed and we can take Joseph's life and we can look at an example and to see and to have that perspective. And I want to encourage you, if you're going through a very challenging, difficult time today, suffering horrible consequences of sinful decisions of other people, I want to encourage you to look at Joseph's life. 
and to ask Holy Spirit to overwhelm your heart and your mind, to transform your heart into mind, to be able to see that He, God, is still working in your life to bring glory to His name and to touch and to transform you into the image of Jesus. It is not easy. And it's a process and it takes a long time, but we will be pressed down and we'll be hard pressed and we will suffer. But if we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, trusting in him, even when we don't have answers, the promises of Romans 8, that God works all things for the good of all who love him and who are called according to his purposes, he will do it. And I almost can guarantee you it won't be in your way nor in your time. But he will do it. The fourth truth to this passage is God longs for reconciliation. Jesus is the epitome of reconciliation. And you guys know the story. It's why we celebrate Christmas. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The power of forgiveness and restoration created for relationship. Trail, do you mind coming on up, please? And, and Stephanie and Megan. And the life of Joseph, we see three biblical truths. Matthew 18, 15, it's the passage about forgiveness. And Peter asked Jesus, well, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times, and Jesus says, no, up to 77 times, or seven times 70. It depends on your translation. But Jesus commands us in Matthew 18, 15. He says, if a brother or sister sins against you, go to them privately and reveal their sin to them. And if you've won them over, you've reconciled yourself to them. And so one of our calls as Christians, as sons and daughters of Jesus, if someone has sinned against us, we need to go to them privately and tell them what they've done to us. Not to prove that we're right and they're wrong, but for reconciliation. One of the keys to have relationship, because we will be sinned against, is to forgive those who have sinned against us the way our Heavenly Father has forgiven us. But the second one is this. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that if we're at the altar giving our gift and we realize that we have sinned against somebody, what are we to do? We're to go to our brother and our sister who has something against us. We're to leave our gift there in front of the altar. We're first to go and be reconciled with our brother and sister and then come back and offer our gift. So if we know that we've sinned against somebody, it's the reverse. We go to that person and we ask for forgiveness. And then there's an incredible truth in Romans 12, 18 where Paul tells us, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that's key because there's going to be some people in our life dear to us who we long to be reconciled to, and they put their hand up and they don't want to have anything to do with us. And they say no. And we can't reconcile with them. Our Heavenly Father goes through the same thing. Scripture says that our God longs for everyone to be saved. And yet people are rejecting Jesus every day. So there will be relationships in our lives 
where we desire and long for reconciliation, and we can't. You see, with forgiveness, forgiveness is a gift. We receive it, and we give it away. But for there to be reconciliation, it requires both parties, so to speak, to forgive and ask for forgiveness. And if one refuses, there won't be reconciliation. And then there's a third aspect called trust. And trust takes time to build and grow. I want to encourage everybody to stand. I know this was a long message. But it's an important one. We were created for relationship, but in many of our relationships, there's been hurt and pain. And as we sing this last song, I just want to encourage all of us. Number one, recognize the broken relationships in your life. Recognize the fact, too, that all of us are victims of other people's sins and sinful choices. At the same time, all of us are responsible for our own actions, our own words, our own attitudes and life choices. The fourth thing is recognize the importance, the power, and the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. And I want to encourage you, number five, this is kind of our action step. Surrender to Jesus your broken relationships that you might have in your life. It could be with a brother or sister, a friend, your spouse, a coworker, a roommate, a mentor, a son or daughter. Surrender that relationship to Jesus. Lay at his feet. And then trust in him for next steps. For some of us, it is to go to them and ask for forgiveness. For some of us, it's to forgive from the heart. As we sing and worship, allow Holy Spirit to speak and minister to you.